Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. I want to keep bringing y'all high-quality content, but I cannot do that without your support. So please, help buy me a cup of coffee every month and join the Ward Republic by chipping in $5 per month through the supporting listener link in the show notes page. I am not part of a fancy podcasting network, and I don't like the restrictions that come along with certain advertising campaigns. So I am coming to y'all with my hat in my hand. So please help me keep this show going and keep it independent by doing your part and chipping in. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I do also have a Cash App profile for the show. So one-time contributions can be sent there. And all of this information is listed in the show notes page as well. And don't forget that Ward Republic membership includes a monthly video conference with myself and the other Ward Republic members. And support monetary freedom today and head over to our sponsor at www.defythegrid.com to purchase your gold bags. I have an affiliate link in the show notes page, and if you use it, I will get a 1% commission, so that'll also help keep the show going. So click on my link in that show notes page and fuel monetary decentralization today. And if you aren't on MeWe yet, then seriously, what are you waiting for? Unlike a certain other social media platform, MeWe respects the right to free speech and offers a privacy bill of rights. So if you'd like to be a member there, then download the MeWe app and search for me at the username Mr. Jeffersonian. The show group is private, so we must be contacts before I can send you the group invite. With all of that fun stuff out of the way, let's now turn our attention to the topic for today's episode. All right, so we have gone through Hamilton's second report on public credit. What we're going to do today is actually look and see what Thomas Jefferson himself had to say about the proposed National Bank. Before we get into that, I do just want to cover a couple of the final things from that second report on public credit. And this is at the very end of the report. Basically, Hamilton outlines the actual design of the bank. So I'm not going to go through each one of these articles of incorporation or each one of these tenets of corporation uh, or incorporation, excuse me. What I'm going to do is just kind of focus on a select few, and then we're going to see, again, Jefferson's response to this or the Jeffersonian response. So Hamilton says here at the end, he says, Abandoning, therefore, ideas which, however agreeable or desirable, are neither practicable nor safe, the following plan for the constitution of a national bank is respectfully submitted to the consideration of the House. One, the capital stock of the bank shall not exceed 10 millions of dollars divided into 25,000 shares, each share being $400 to raise which sum subscription shall be open on the first Monday of April next and shall continue open until the whole shall be subscribed. Bodies politic as well as individuals may subscribe. Now there, when he says bodies politic, I think he's talking about state governments and definitely the general government. So one of, one of the linchpins of Hamilton's version of the national bank was that the federal government would always be the majority shareholder but aside from that it would be open to individual stock investors as well and then some of the next tenets of the constitution of the bank would actually just kind of spell out its debt limits and how much it could actually lend to the government without prior legislative authority so on and so forth and then another thing that he talks about here and i find this interesting is the way in which the proxy votes would work or the way that the voting shares would work so here in tenant number 11 or point number 11 he says the number of votes to which each stockholder shall be entitled shall be according to the number of shares he shall hold in the proportions following that is to say for one share and not more than two shares one vote for every two shares above two and not exceeding ten one vote for every four shares above 10 and not exceeding 30, one vote. For every six shares above 30 and not exceeding 60, one vote. For every eight shares above 60 and not exceeding 100, one vote. 
And for every 10 shares above 100, one vote, but no person, co-partnership, or body politic shall be entitled to a greater number than 30 votes. And after the first election, no share or shares shall confer a right of suffrage, which shall not have been holding three calendar months previous to the day of election. Stockholders actually resident within the United States and none other may vote in elections by proxy. So I find that interesting because, again, the general government was always going to be the major shareholder here or the majority shareholder in the bank. So the fact that their influence could be limited, I guess, by stipulating that not more than 30 votes could be cast by a single party or block, that, that's interesting to me. Uh, but, you know, again, over the course of time, we would see that the bank would just be a political tool of the government. And sometimes the government would be a kind of a puppet for the bank throughout the existence of the First National Bank of the U.S. And so that's the last tenant that I'm going to mention for today's episode. Now, if y'all want to see the full layout of what Hamilton envisioned for the First National Bank, again, his full plan of incorporation for it can be found in the second report on public credit. So just something to keep in mind there if you want to do your own research on this topic. But now that we have that out of the way, let's go ahead and dig right in. And again, we're going to be looking at Thomas Jefferson and what he said about the National Bank as it related to the powers of Congress and the Constitution. And as an aside here, I first became aware of this letter's existence when I was reading the Dumas Malone biographical series of Thomas Jefferson, um, which your guys' generous membership contributions helped me purchase. So shameless plug there also. Please, if you're not a contributing member, consider becoming so today. Help me buy diapers for my upcoming child and also keep buying books so I can do research for the show. But anyway, in Dumas Malone's biographical series of Jefferson, when this letter is brought up, Dumas Malone actually talks about how Jefferson wrote this letter without really too much forethought or effort. Um, he, he didn't really think it was going to be that important. He didn't know exactly what was going to happen. So what happens is Jefferson hastily constructs this letter just kind of off the top of his head. And then Washington would later present this letter to Alexander Hamilton and say, okay, look, Hamilton, here is Jefferson's opinion on it. He thinks it's unconstitutional. What is your opinion on it? And then Hamilton would actually go all out and respond with a letter of more than 15,000 words. So I thought that was interesting just to kind of think all of the really strong points that Jefferson makes in this letter, he just came up with them off the top of his head. So I, I thought it was worth pointing that out. But anyway, let's now get to the letter itself. So this is from Thomas Jefferson to George Washington. This was a letter, an official letter from Jefferson as Secretary of State. And he wrote this on February 15, 1791. So Hamilton's second report on public credit was released in December of 1790. And here we have Jefferson responding approximately two months later in this letter to President Washington. So he starts off, it says, The bill for establishing a national bank undertakes, among other things, one, to form the subscribers into a corporation. That's going to be important later on in the letter. Two, to enable them in their corporate capacity to receive grants of land. And so far as against the laws of Mort Maine, though the Constitution controls the laws of Mort Maine, so far as to permit Congress itself to hold lands for certain purposes yet not so far as to permit them to communicate a similar right to other corporate bodies. Now, for those of you who don't know what the laws of Mortmain are, and that I actually didn't until I started researching this episode, the laws of Mortmain were a traditional part of the English common law system that dates back to the 13th century, or these laws date back to the 13th century. And they dealt with land being held by the, quote, dead hand, end quote, of a corporation. 
And the term Mort Main is of French origin, Mort meaning dead and Main meaning hand. So again, the dead hand of the corporation. Now, interestingly, feudal landlords who owned land were the major supporters of these laws as land that was signed away to monasteries or other government chartered corporations deprived the landlord of profitable use of said land. As, quote, the corporation was never underage, never died, and never committed felony or married, end quote. So basically what was happening is you would have the feudal landlord say, look, once a corporate entity takes over this land, that's it. They hold it forever. They, they can never do anything to get rid of it. We can never dissolve them and we can never take this portion of our land back. And Britain actually respected the laws of Mortmain all the way up until the 20th century. So they abolished the law of Mortmain in 1960, but it does still have some limited existence here in the States. So this is very interesting because Jefferson, again, we can trace this all the way up through the agrarians at, at least. And even in modern terms, you have some people kind of asking, do corporations need to own this much? But Jefferson here in 1791 is laying the foundation of the agrarian school of thought to say, look, corporations should not be able to hold this land forever. They should not get these indefinite grants like this. So I found that very interesting. Again, you guys know I have kind of turned away from the corporate form uh, or become cold towards it. And then here in point number three, Jefferson says, to make alien subscribers capable of holding lands and so far is against the laws of alienage. So he's saying, look, we're giving foreigners the same right to hold land via the corporation as we're giving to our own citizens. Now, some people may think that's a good thing. Some people may think that's a bad thing. But early on in American history, we can definitely say, well, that may be cause for concern as far as national security is concerned, because if we have a lot of British debt holders or if we have a lot of British investors, the British are just going to be pulling strings on America through the bank. And that was one of the big, big Jeffersonian critiques of the banking system. And then in number four, he says, to transmit these lands on the death of a proprietor to a certain line of successors and so far changes the course of descents, which means the inheritors. Five, to put the lands out of the reach of forfeiture or as cheat, and so far is against the laws of forfeiture and as cheat. Now, these were also based on older English common law and essentially said that the land would revert to the Lord in the event of tenant death or if the tenant committed a felony offense. In the early American period, instead of a feudal Lord, the land would have instead reverted to the domain of the state government. Now, when Jefferson says that the lands are put out of reach, he is pointing to the legal privileges and artificial immortality of the bank as a corporate entity. And he's basically saying, look, we're giving this thing limited liability. There's no way if they do something wrong, there's no way for the state government to correct this. And it, it's only going to be beholden to the general government. And as we would see, the general government would actually have a vested interest in not punishing the bank when it did things inappropriately. Uh, as we fast forward, I would say up until about the late 1820s or so. And so Jefferson's making a very good point there because he's saying, look, there's no way for the states to put a check on this. And we would actually see that in McCulloch v. Maryland when Maryland tried to tax the state branch of the National Bank and John Marshall said no. And that's where Spencer Rowan comes in and he just hammers them in the Hamden essays. So then point number six, he says, to transmit personal chattels to successors in a certain line and so far is against the laws of distribution. So this kind of ties in with point number four. And Jefferson was highly concerned with trying to prevent the vast manorial holdings that had developed in England over the course of centuries. And to this concern, we can actually kind of infer his frame of mind on eternal consolidation when we look at his work in the Virginia Assembly when he was the governor and also when he was a member of the state legislature. 
So recall that during the revolution, Jefferson was actually a leading voice in trying to abolish laws of intel and primogeniture. And people like John Randolph actually didn't really like that. Uh, he, he thought that was one of Jefferson's worst things that he did within the state. But the whole point behind that was Jefferson said, look, we need to do whatever we can to try to prevent these vast, vast private estates popping up and creating a, you know, basically recreating a feudal aristocracy. Now, Jefferson was not opposed to a natural aristocracy. He thought that there were going to be times where you needed the best men of a local society to stand forth and be reckoned with, so to speak. But what he wanted to prevent was these artificial state privileges that basically fostered and enabled that. He, he wanted the natural cream to rise to the crop, not the artificial. So just something to keep in mind there. And I think both Jefferson and John Randolph had, had actually had really good points on that. John Randolph made a very strong case for the aristocracy as it actually existed versus Jefferson was a little bit more abstract and saying, look, we, we want to abolish the artificial privileges here. And then point number seven, to give them the sole and exclusive right of banking under the national authority and so far as against the laws of monopoly. That one speaks for itself. If you have a national bank that's getting all these federal deposits, yes, it's going to have a huge advantage over state banks. It's going to have a huge advantage over other private banks. And then point number eight, to communicate to them a power to make laws paramount to the laws of the states. For so they must be construed to protect the institution from the control of the state legislatures, and so probably they will be construed. And so right there, right there, point number eight, Jefferson is saying this thing, you're going to charter a corporation that becomes more powerful than a sovereign state itself. And that is exactly what we got in the McCulloch v. Maryland decision. And again, I reference back to my episodes on Spencer Roan as far as why that was such a devastating decision. You are setting up a corporate entity above a sovereign state. And in Jefferson's mind, that could not be allowed or should not be allowed. And then Jefferson goes on to say, and this is one of my all-time favorite quotes from Thomas Jefferson. He says, I consider the foundation of the Constitution as laid on this ground, that all powers not delegated to the U.S. by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states or to the people, reference the Twelfth Amendment, to take a single step beyond the boundaries thus specially drawn around the powers of Congress is to take possession of a boundless field of power no longer susceptible of any definition. Now, in that section, I said reference 12th Amendment. Um, so when the Bill of Rights was originally proposed, there were actually anticipated to be 12 amendments included in that, and the state right amendment was going to be the last one, so number 12. Uh, as we got the Bill of Rights that actually was passed and ratified, it was actually the 10th Amendment. So when he says reference 12th Amendment there, just know he's, he's actually talking about what would become the 10th Amendment. But that is one of my all-time favorite quotes from Thomas Jefferson. Again, that, especially that section where he says, to take a single step beyond the boundaries thus specially drawn around the powers of Congress is to take possession of a boundless field of power. So he's saying there, he's making the argument for strict construction. One step beyond what the Constitution says they can do, and we've removed all checks on them, and they become their own independent agent, and they can do whatever they want, susceptible to no definition of power. So I love that statement by Jefferson there. And then he goes on to say, The incorporation of a bank and the powers assumed by this bill have not, in my opinion, been delegated to the U.S. by the Constitution. And then he lays out his case here. He says, Point number one, they are not among the powers specially enumerated, for these are a power to lay taxes for the purpose of paying the debts of the U.S., but no debt is paid by this bill, nor any tax laid. Were it a bill to raise money, its origination in the Senate would condemn it by the Constitution. 
Two, to borrow money. But this bill neither borrows money nor ensures the borrowing of it. The proprietors of the bank will be just as free as any other money holders to lend or not to lend their money to the public. The operation proposed in the bill, first to lend them two millions and then borrow them back again, cannot change the nature of the latter act, which will still be a payment and not a loan, call it by what name you please. Three, to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the states and with the Indian tribes, to erect a bank and to regulate commerce are very different acts. He who erects a bank creates a subject of commerce in its bills. So does he who makes a bushel of wheat or digs a dollar out of the mines. Yet neither of these persons regulates commerce thereby. To erect a thing which may be bought and sold is not to prescribe regulations for buying and selling. Besides, if this was an exercise of the power of regulating commerce, it would be void as extending as much to the internal commerce of every state as to its external for the power given to Congress by the Constitution does not extend to the internal regulation of the commerce of a state, that is to say of the commerce between citizen and citizen, which remains exclusively within its own legislature, but to its external commerce only, that is to say its commerce with another state or with foreign nations, or with the Indian tribes. Accordingly, the bill does not propose the measure as a regulation of trade, but as productive of considerable advantage to trade. And so here again, Jefferson obviously hammering away at the God of convenience, saying, look, this bill does not propose the measure as a regulation of trade, but as productive of considerable advantage to trade. So basically, the general government was incorporating the bank to make facilitating trade easier. They were going to grease the wheels. They being the government were going to grease the wheels of trade and commerce. And this would be at the expense of the rural population, be they northern or southern. This would be an expense to the agrarian section of the country who was not connected to these big cities and these big financial houses, as Jefferson, Madison, and Edmund Randolph actually would, would go on to say, and, well, and obviously, let's not forget John Taylor of Caroline when we get to the 18-teens and 1820s. So it, it's unbelievable the foresight that Jefferson had here where he's saying, look, if we allow them to do this for the sake of convenience, for the God of convenience, if we allow them this power, they're going to take on everything in a vortex. And we would see that same line of reasoning with Spencer Rowan. I mean, again, all these Jeffersonians, we had a very strong current of them all throughout American history, at least up until about the 1940s, 1950s, even into the very early 1960s. But now it's on life support. Ron Paul, I would say, yes, libertarian, but he was also very Jeffersonian in his approach to state rights. And now, really, Thomas Massey and Rand Paul are some of the only torchbearers for, for this kind of philosophy, and it's, it's sad. But let's go ahead and get back to the letter. Still less are these powers covered by any other of the special enumerations, nor are they within either of the general phrases, which are the two following. To lay taxes to provide for the general welfare of the U.S., that is to say, to lay taxes for the purpose of providing for the general welfare. For the laying of taxes is the power and the general welfare the purpose for which the power is to be exercised. They are not to lay taxes ad libitum for any purpose they please, but only to pay the debts or provide for the welfare of the union. In like manner, they are not to do anything they please to provide for the general welfare, but only to lay taxes for that purpose. To consider the latter phrase, not as describing the purpose of the first, but as given a distinct and independent power to do any act they please, 
which might be for the good of the union, would render all the preceding and subsequent enumerations of power completely useless. It would reduce the whole instrument to a single phrase, that of instituting a Congress with power to do whatever would be for the good of the U.S., and as they would be the sole judges of the good or evil, it would be also a power to do whatever evil they pleased. And so between these two sentences, Jefferson's really laying out the platform of the entire Jeffersonian ideology. So let's go back to that boundless field of power quote. So there, think about what he says. I consider the foundation of the Constitution as laid on this ground, that all powers not delegated to the U.S. by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states or to the people. So there he's saying states' rights forms the bedrock or the foundation of the Constitution, and if we abandon states' rights, then think what he's saying here in this most recent section. It would reduce the whole instrument to a single phrase, that of instituting a Congress with power to do whatever would be for the good of the U.S. And as they would be the sole judges of the good or evil, it would be also a power to do whatever evil they pleased. So between those two statements, Jefferson is strongly laying out the platform of the Jeffersonian ideology, the Jeffersonian vision that we would see for the first 80-ish years of American history, the resurgence that we would see in the populist movement, and then again, the resurgence that we would see with the agrarian movement. But that is the platform. States' rights are the bedrock of the union, because without states' rights, the Congress is going to have whatever power to do whatever evil it pleases. So very strong statements there, and we have to take Jefferson in totality with this letter. We, we cannot just sit here, pick and choose. We have to realize the way that he's building this argument upon itself. It's layer by layer. He is talking about all the different problems that could arise from a consolidated system. But let's go ahead and get back to the letter. It is an established rule of construction where a phrase will bear either of two meanings to give it that which will allow some meaning to the other parts of the instrument and not that which would render all the others useless. Certainly no such universal power was meant to be given them. It was intended to lace them up straightly within the enumerated powers and those without which as means these powers could not be carried into effect. It is known that the very power now proposed as a means was rejected as an end by the convention which formed the Constitution, a proposition was made to them to authorize Congress to open canals and an amendatory one to empower them to incorporate. But the whole was rejected. And one of the reasons of rejection urged in debate was that then they would have a power to erect a bank which would render the great cities where there were prejudices and jealousies on that subject adverse to the reception of the Constitution. Now, it's interesting that Jefferson brings this point up because in the Philadelphia Convention, it was actually none other than James Madison who had proposed giving Congress the power to incorporate a national bank or really to incorporate almost any sort of business. And that was vehemently voted down. That was explicitly, as Jefferson said, that's a fact. That was explicitly rejected in the Philadelphia Convention. They did not want to give Congress the authority to charter a bank. Now, it's also interesting because Washington uh, is the recipient of this letter, but Washington had actually also talked to Madison kind of off on the side and chided him for trying to rely on the convention as a means of interpreting the Constitution. Now, in my opinion, they were the folks who were there. They're the only ones who know beyond the shadow of a doubt what actually transpired at the Philadelphia Convention and honestly, I do think, therefore, their opinion has a little bit more weight because they were the actual attendees. They know what powers were specifically debated. And in this case, 
Jefferson is bringing that up. Madison had brought that up. And even Edmund Randolph would bring that up. So you have three Jeffersonians who are going to bring up the fact that this power was explicitly denied to Congress, and yet Washington ultimately is still going to end up signing this bill. So I just thought that was really interesting that Jefferson had this strong of an argument again, off the top of his head. And I wanted to give you guys a little bit of context behind why he brought that up, because it was none other than Madison himself who proposed granting the Congress that power. But let's go ahead and get back to the letter. The second general phrase is to make all laws necessary and proper for carrying into execution the enumerated powers, but they can all be carried into execution without a bank. A bank, therefore, is not necessary and consequently not authorized by this phrase. It has been much urged that a bank will give great facility or convenience in the collection of taxes. Suppose this were true. Yet the Constitution allows only the means which are necessary, not those which are merely convenient for effecting the enumerated powers. If such a latitude of construction be allowed to this phrase as to gain any non-enumerated power, it will go to every one, for there is no one which ingenuity may not torture into a convenience in some way or other to someone of so long a list of enumerated powers. It would swallow up all the delegated powers and reduce the whole to one phrase as before observed. Therefore, it was that the Constitution restrained them to the necessary means, that is to say, to those means without which the grant of the power would be nugatory. And so here we have Jefferson arguing against a broad interpretation of what was known as the sweeping clauses. So the general welfare clause, the necessary and proper clause, and then the supremacy clause would also be included in that. But here Jefferson is saying strict construction. This is the only defense that we have with our bedrock being states' rights. Again, this argument builds on itself layer by layer. So you take away their ability to judge for themselves, they being the general government, you take away their ability to judge for themselves the constitutionality of a matter, and you leave it with the people and with the states, that's the only way that you're going to check this system from consolidating in total. And let's go ahead and get back to the letter. But let us examine this convenience and see what it is. The report on this subject, page 3, states the only general convenience to be the preventing the transportation and retransportation of money between the states and the treasury. For I pass over the increase of circulating medium ascribed to it as a merit and which, according to my ideas of paper money, is clearly a demerit. Every state will have to pay a sum of tax money into the treasury, and the treasury will have to pay in every state a part of the interest on the public debt and salaries to the officers of government resident in that state. In most of the states, there will still be a surplus of tax money to come up to the seat of government for the officers residing there. The payments of interest and salary in each state may be made by treasury orders on the state collector, this will take up the greater part of the money he has collected in his state and consequently prevent the great mass of it from being drawn out of the state. If there be a balance of commerce in favor of that state against the one in which the government resides, the surplus of taxes will be remitted by bills of exchange drawn for that commercial balance. And so it must be if there was a bank, but if there be no balance of commerce, either direct or circuitous, all the banks in the world could not bring up the surplus of taxes but in the form of money. Treasury orders then and bills of exchange may prevent the displacement of the main mass of the money collected without the aid of any bank, and where these fail, it cannot be prevented even with that aid. Perhaps, indeed, bank bills may be a more convenient vehicle than treasury orders, 
but a little difference in the degree of convenience cannot constitute the necessity which the Constitution makes the ground for assuming any non-enumerated power. Besides, the existing banks will without a doubt enter into arrangements for lending their agency and the more favorable as there will be a competition among them for it, whereas the bill delivers us up bound to the National Bank, who are free to refuse all arrangement, but on their own terms, and the public not free on such refusal to employ any other bank, that of Philadelphia, I believe, now does this business by their post notes, which by an arrangement with the Treasury are paid by any state collector to whom they are presented. This expedient alone suffices to prevent the existence of that necessity which may justify the assumption of a non-enumerated power as a means for carrying into effect an enumerated one. The thing may be done, and has been done, and well done, without this assumption. Therefore, it does not stand on that degree of necessity which can honestly justify it. And so this part's pretty interesting because Jefferson's actually spelling out like, look, yes, a bank will be convenient in facilitating certain things, but the government has its own ability to do these things as well, specifically trying to gather tax revenue and remit the payments and uh, repayments to the states. Now, Jefferson is actually kind of spelling out a little bit of a proto-sub-treasury or independent treasury, which we would get under the Jackson administration and Van Buren administration in the late 1830s and throughout the 1840s. So that, that to me is very interesting. He, he's talking about this stuff, you know, roughly about 50 years before it actually happened. And then the Jeffersonians through Jackson would actually get a little bit of a success with this. And John C. Calhoun was a big, big supporter of the independent treasury. So Jefferson here is spelling out how that could be done without having to resort to a so-called private national bank that has a monopoly on government finance. So very interesting point that he's making here, but let's get back to it. It may be said that a bank whose bills would have a currency all over the states would be more convenient than one whose currency is limited to a single state. So it would be still more convenient that there should be a bank whose bills should have a currency all over the world. But it does not follow from this superior conveniency that there exists anywhere a power to establish such a bank, or that the world may not go on very well without it. Can it be thought that the Constitution intended that for a shade or two of convenience, more or less, Congress should be authorized to break down the most ancient and fundamental laws of the several states, such as those against Mort Main, the laws of alienage, the rules of descent, the acts of distribution, the law of escheat and forfeiture, the laws of monopoly. Nothing but a necessity, invincible by any other means, can justify such a prostration of laws which constitute the pillars of our whole system of jurisprudence. Will Congress be too straight-laced to carry the Constitution into honest effect, unless they may pass over the foundation laws of the state governments for the slightest convenience to theirs. The negative of the president is the shield provided by the Constitution to protect against the invasions of the legislature. One, the rights of the executive. Two, of the judiciary. Three, of the states and state legislatures. The present is the case of a right remaining exclusively with the states and is consequently one of those intended by the Constitution to be placed under his protection. And so Jefferson here is given a really awesome defense of the president's veto power. So during the Philadelphia Convention and the state ratifying conventions, a lot of anti-federalists actually did not want the president to have any sort of a veto power at all. They, they wanted the legislature to uh, basically have free reign there. They, they did not want a veto in the executive branch because they likened that to the king of England. 
Now, Jefferson did not necessarily consider himself an anti-federalist, but he was definitely not a federalist. I, I would argue he fell closer to the anti-federalist camp with some necessity of a little bit stronger central government, but his preferred route was actually to amend the Articles of Confederation. But anyway, Jefferson here in this defense is basically saying, look, because you were constitutionally granted this power, George, now is the time to use it. You have a responsibility and a duty to use it, to remain faithful to the Constitution, to maintain fidelity to what the Constitution says the general government can do, now is the time to use your veto and veto this legislation because the Congress is not authorized to pass this bill. So very interesting defense there of the veto power, again, from someone who was a little bit suspicious of executive power. But let's go ahead and wrap up the letter. It must be added, however, that unless the president's mind on a view of everything which is urged for and against this bill is tolerably clear that it is unauthorized by the Constitution... If the pro and the con hang so even as to balance his judgment, a just respect for the wisdom of the legislature would naturally decide the balance in favor of their opinion. It is chiefly for cases where they are clearly misled by error, ambition, or interest that the Constitution has placed a check in the negative of the president. And so that concludes the letter, but again, Jefferson ends this by saying, look, you were given the veto power for a reason, now use it. Uh, he didn't come right out and tell George Washington to use it, but it's strongly implied here that Jefferson is basically making a case to say, if you were ever going to use it, now is the time to do it. And so Jefferson, again, very much so anti-bank, very anti-bank. He thought it would lead to consolidation of the financial system, and inevitably that would carry over and lead to consolidation in the general government, because as he said in this letter, if we allowed them to do this, it will constitute giving them a boundless field of power. So great letter here. Again, this was written from Thomas Jefferson to George Washington, February 15, 1791. And thank you all again so much for your time and for tuning in. Please remember, if you find value in the podcast, to consider becoming a supporting listener. And don't forget to help fuel the Jeffersonian Revolution by using the link in the show notes page to purchase your goldbacks today. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in, and I will talk to you all next time. <laughs>